please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're going to be in 1 John verses 13 or chapter 4 verses 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You may be seated. Um, am I on? I can speak loud enough. There we go. Thank you, Brad. Uh, I'm going to try and hold it together uh, for a moment. Um, which is hard. Uh, like Randy said, uh, we were here nine years ago. And I know a lot of you, and a lot of you I don't know, I don't recognize. Um, but this church was where I got married. Um, this congregation was where I grew up as a Christian, and I'm deeply honored to be back again to, to share God's word with you. So let me pray. Father, renew us again, even more continually this morning, into the image of your Son. By your Spirit, remove the veil and, and allow us to see you and know you and love you in your unapproachable light. Father, don't leave us outside. Um, don't leave us um, apart from you, but continue to unite us to yourself. Save us, fill us with your love, and teach us what it is to love our brother and sister. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you guys know, John wrote this epistle to a congregation that had suffered really deep fractures. Uh, Christian brothers and sisters who had celebrated their unity at the Lord's table no longer gathered together. People who had spent time together and confessed their sin to one another no longer did that. Now they said they have no sin, they don't need to, to confess, they don't need the forgiveness of others. John calls these people antichrists. And for good reason, they had turned on the one whom they had confessed as the Christ and those who were their brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's understandable then that John in this letter has such a concern for abiding and for love. People who had professed their love for Jesus and who had professed their love for one another didn't abide. They didn't stay. They, they didn't remain. 
And John is jealous that those that are reading his words and hearing his words read aloud to them from this letter, he's jealous that they stay, that they abide in the words of Christ, in the love of Christ, in the truth of Christ. It's all over this letter, so just from 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now little children, 2.28, abide in him so that when he appears, when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God abides in him. And 4.12 from the passage from last week, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The Christian life for John then is a life together with God, abiding in God, a mutual indwelling of the Christian in God and God in the Christian. Jesus spoke of this life together in his ministry, which the same apostle John tells us in his gospel, right? All over the place. John 3.16, or we'll get there later, sorry. John 14, 14, 9 through 11. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus tells his followers to abide in him in a curious way by eating and drinking his body and blood. John 6, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus talks about the coming spirit. This is verse 13. We know that we abide in God. For we have, he's given us of his spirit. Jesus tells us this in John 14. I'll ask of the Father, he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. But then in a passage that's familiar to most of us, that rings most of all with the language of abiding and dwelling is John 15. This is just a couple verses picked out of there. I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, like we just sang, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But listen to how John 15, that paragraph in John 15 ends. As the Father has loved me, his Son, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So for John, both in his gospel and this first epistle, abiding in love, specifically the love of God, is of the utmost importance. We abide in Christ's love because he has loved us. This is the same message that John has for the congregation in our passage today. For a Christian to be a Christian is for that person to abide in God and for God to abide in that person and for the abiding to be an abiding in love. But what's the connection between abiding and love specifically? Why is love a central theme for the Christian life? Notice that John repeats three times in the first verses of our passage, verses 13 and 14, 15 and 16, that we must abide in God 
And that throughout these three repetitions of abide in God, abide in God, abide in God, he mentions all three divine persons of the Holy Trinity. In 4.13 he says, we know we abide in God because he, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two verses later we're told that we abide in God through our confession that Jesus is his son whom the Father sent to us. And then the third mention of abiding tells us to abide in God's love. In fact, though, John goes further than that to say that God is love. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is love. Two relatively simple statements, right? We are to abide in God who is triune, and we are to abide in love. Bringing it all together, John says that to abide in love is to abide in God, for God is love. This morning, rather than focusing on defining what abiding is, or giving tips to help us abide better, or even simply telling you to abide over and over again, as Jesus and John both continually do, I want to spend time instead contemplating through the scriptures what it means that God is love. But why, why do that? Why spend the rest of today just trying to answer the question, what does it mean that God is love? It's because this is the reason that John gives us that love and abiding are intertwined. Why does John mention these things? He gives us the three words to, show, to tell us why they are one and the same thing, because God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Since the beginnings of the church, and therefore of Christian theology, knowing God intimately and deeply has always been put forward as the surest strategy to abide in God. To focus so much on the Christian life like we do today in Christian books and blogs, to focus on abiding as a a goal in our lives without contemplating the deep well of God's nature as love is a recipe for shallow roots, for frustrated and stunted growth, and ultimately fruitlessness. In other words, to focus on our, on our living without fir- first focusing on God's life is totally backwards. This is why when we read books on Christian living that are chock full of practical suggestions but have little deep theology in them, we often feel afterwards as if they did little to change us. And we, then we read another, and then we read another, and then we go to blogs, and then we read another. And we still feel like we've been in the same place for quite a long time. Strategies and exhortations and resolutions and desire for growth and abiding apart from contemplation of God is like a car without gas. It's like a fire without wood. If that's right, then what we need first is a theology of love. One that's thoroughly Trinitarian focused on God. In other words, we must first see that John's theology of love, John's idea of love, is primarily a theology of God, not a theology of the Christian life. Our love flows not just from the fact that God has loved us, although that's certainly the case, he says it, but the fact that God who has loved us is love himself. Therefore, we do need a definition of love, but not in the modern dictionary sense, but in the personal and eternal sense of the life of the Holy Trinity of love. And so my task this morning is to express as far as I'm able what it means that God is love and how this informs our abiding in love. 
So the way that we'll go forward is this. First, we'll define love as God's life as the Holy Trinity. Second, we'll see how that love in God himself extends to us in redemption. And third, we'll hear what that means for our lives of love here, practically, day to day on the ground. So first, the Trinity. John says twice in chapter four, and most directly in this passage, God is love. Many commentators today want to take John's very simple assertion as shorthand for God's acts of love towards us in redemption, particularly he sent his son to save us and he sent his spirit to help us. That's not wrong. While we certainly know God's love through his action towards us, to, to stop there and to not explore the depths of John's claim is to miss both the beginning and the end of our Christian life together. And here's what I mean. We know God's love through the fact that he's come into the world to save us. But who is this God that has done this? If God is love, love in his essence, love in his nature, then this helps us understand who it is who is saving us and whom it is we are being saved for. Who God is provides us the context for the narrative of salvation. And God tells us, John tells us that God is love, and so God's love provides the beginning of our journey as Christians as well as the end towards which we're traveling. So what is love, then, if God is love? To answer that question, we can't start from our culture. We ought never to start from our culture to answer those kinds of questions. We have to start from the beginning, not just of time, but of Christian theology. And this is where Christian theology begins. We have to start with God, the triune God. Now, some of you may already be thinking this. Uh, too often the Trinity has become a doctrine in the church that we don't talk much about. Or if we do talk about it, we kind of give lip service to it because we know the words Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we, you know, and you might have said the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed or the Apostles' Creed before, or you might read Matthew you know, 28 and read the baptismal formula, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But other than that, we don't talk about the doctrine of the Trinity all that much or all that in depth. Sometimes we avoid it out of embarrassment. Right? It seems too mysterious or too complex or even kind of irrational to talk about one God, three persons, but we know that we need it so that Jesus doesn't simply become a good man who did good things or a kind of God kind of figure. We know that we need the Trinity. And on the one hand, this hesitancy is understandable. Who are we and what power does our language have to adequately express what it means that we worship a God who's one God but is three persons? Language necessarily fails us. It is a mystery. But it's a mystery that we must not only believe, but we need to enter into it. We need to inhabit it as a fundamental truth of our faith. The Christian faith doesn't only consist of our confession that Jesus died for me, a sinner. The Christian confession, the Christian faith, remakes the world, remakes the way that we see and understand the world as created by the triune God for himself, existing always only by the power of that triune God. All of reality, all of our story, all of our faith is Trinitarian because God is the Holy Trinity. And therefore, that's the basic grammar of Christianity. 
The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what that means is how we ought to pray, how we ought to think, how we ought to hope, how we ought to believe, and how we ought to confess. And so we need to know this basic grammar of our faith. So as Christians, who do we confess God is as Trinity? Simply put, we can start with the Father, right? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is generally considered to be the most understandable person of the Trinity because when Jesus prays, who does he pray to? He prays to his Father. Who does he teach us to pray to? Our Father. We know we're praying to God. God is Father. The Father is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, as the Apostles' Creed has it. But if the Father is God, then who is the Son? Well, the Son is, of course, Jesus Christ who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He's God also, incarnate for us and for our salvation. But in Holy Scripture, the Son is called other things as well. The Son is not just Jesus Christ. The Son is not just the Son of Man or the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Word, John 1, right? The Son is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15, the fullness of God, Colossians 1.19, or as Hebrews has it, the exact imprint of his nature. So in God himself, the Son, who we know as Jesus Christ, Son of God, is the perfect repetition of the Father, but a repetition who stands apart from him. Now, if I were to have brought my son Eli today, he's one and a half, and if I were to have him standing here, it would be an imperfect analogy for this, right? You could clearly tell that we are father and son, two different persons, but Eli is not the perfect imprint of my nature. He doesn't share fully who I am as a human being. The divine son, however, is identical to the father in all ways except one. He's the son and the Father is his Father. This means that the eternal Son shares in the power of his Father. The Son shares in the transcendence of his Father, the eternality of his Father, but he also shares in the Father's goodness, his kindness, his perfection, his, his love, his beauty. The Son is holy and perfect and righteous just as the Father is, and the way in which they stand apart is simply that the Son is the Son and not the Father. As the Father knows his, spirit, his Son in eternity then, right? the Father perfectly God, the Son perfectly God, they know one another, they see one another, if we can use our language in that way. How do we understand the Spirit? Where does the Spirit fit into to that equation? The Scriptures describe the Spirit often as the love of God. Right? So when, when Paul talks about us in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or later in that letter, Romans 15, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. The first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is love. Paul says of Epaphras in Colossians 1 that he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So just as it is by the Holy Spirit that God gives his love to us, so it is in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that the Father gives his love to the Son, that the Father loves his Son. As the Father sees the Son and knows himself perfectly in the Son, his perfect image, the Father loves the Son perfectly in the Holy Spirit. So these two, the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
are identical with God. They are God in every way and respect. We confess them as God. We worship them as God. In every respect except for this, they are identical to the Father, except you can tell them apart. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit and vice versa. All three are perfect and divine. All three are fully the one God. But all three are united together by the Father's love. So we could do with a definition, a working definition right now. What is love then? Simply put, to love is to rejoice in someone and to want good to be done with them. And we see this in the life of the Trinity. In God, this is the uniting love of the Trinity. The Father knows his Son, and he rejoices in him, and he desires the highest good to be given to his Son. And this highest good is himself. In desiring for the highest good to be given to his Son, the Father gives himself to the Son out of love. This love is the origin of the Holy Spirit, who is the bond of love between the Father and the Son the gift of themselves to each other in perfect unity and love. So love then is this, first, eternally and perfectly established in the communion between Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. One God, but in his one nature, a perfect union of love between Father and Son. This is love's definition in a a fundamental sense. Before we ever get to us, God's life is the most basic way to define love. The Father gives himself to the Son in the Spirit, and the Son does likewise. Love is the Father and the Son's mutual rejoicing in one another and loving one another and desiring that they each have the highest good and therefore them giving themselves to one another in this bond of love. God is, this is what I believe John means, God is this eternal life of self-giving love. And it's from this eternal life of love that God then creates us and redeems us. It's not that he created us to fill some lack in that perfect life of love, but rather that it's the nature of love to want to further share the good that one loves with others. C.S. Lewis says this really well in just really life livable terms. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes our enjoyment of that thing. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur. And then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. When we love something, what do we want to do? We want others to love it with us. Our joy is made full by sharing our love for something with other people and seeing them love it as well. In the same way then, out of his life of love in himself, God created us in order to share that same love with others. Just as the Father gives himself to the Son, Eternally in the love of the Holy Spirit, so God has created us to give himself to us. The love that the Father and the Son share in the Spirit is so good that God created us to share it with us. This sharing is precisely what John gestures at in his gospel and in his epistle. This is John 3.16. What did God do? 
God so loved the world that he gave his son that we might be reconciled back to him and live with him forever, right? 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, welcomed into the life of his family. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. So God loves us And his goal in doing that is to welcome us into the life of love that he has always been living in himself and share it with us. So modern commentators aren't wrong to say that John defines love in this epistle as God sending Jesus to give us eternal life. That's absolutely true. It's it's just more than that. God has revealed to us that this eternal life is not simply salvation in the sense of being rescued from our sin and our bad lives and our failures and our shame and our remorse, but it's a joining into an eternal life of love that has always already been going on forever. Being called a child of God is being united to Christ and entering into the fellowship of love that he shares with the Father and the Spirit. So for God to love us, is for the Father to send his Son to rescue us and make us blameless in his sight so that he can rejoice over us with the same love that he rejoices over the Son. For God to love us is for God to share his very own self with us, to make us partakers of his life of love with the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is why John says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his Spirit. His Spirit is the love that he has given to us to wrap us into that life of love. And this is what the Apostle Peter gestures at as well in his second epistle. He says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, we all might become partakers in the divine nature, which John just said is love. That word partakers is the word for fellowship. It's one of the Greek words that English speaker, English churchgoers know a lot, koinonia, because we throw it around and it's in books and church signs and stuff like that. That word describes, by way of analogy, the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and it describes the goal of the Christian life, which is this. To be so caught up in the eternal story of the love of the Trinity that we live lives here of that same love. Love is not something that we only receive from God as a thing, and then we do it. We we receive it, we have it, we do it. No. By receiving his love, we become a part of that fellowship and become partakers of that one love of the Trinity that has always been going. So because of this, our lives of love, what John calls abiding in love, Our lives are not simply responses to God's kindness to us. It it is that. We love because he's first loved us. But it's still more. When we abide in love, as John says in verse 16, we abide in God and he abides in us. We participate in the love of God as we love others. Put another way, our love for others is itself a sign of our participation in God's divine life of love. For us to abide in love is not simply for us to love others, but to live God's life in our own life. It is not me, but Christ in me, right? This structure is all over the New Testament. As Christ's body, another place, his hands and feet, we live Christ's life in us when we act as Christ does. We We don't abide in Christ 
We're not his hands and feet because we do the right things. Right? That's, that's backwards. Instead, we abide in Christ because God's love has first extended out from himself and drawn us into that life of love. Filling us with the Spirit, uniting us to Christ, making us partakers in that divine love. In other words, abiding is not something that we first do. It's a state of being that is given to us as a gift of God. Freely, mysteriously, from the God who's love himself. So to summarize what we've said, for God to be love, God is love. That means that the Father delights in the Son and wishes the perfect good for the Son, which is the Father himself. And so for God to be love is for the Father and the Son to give themselves to one another fully and freely in love in the Holy Spirit. In this way, God's love is radically self-giving, even in the Trinity, even before he gives himself to us. God's sacrificial love for us flows from this as he gives himself to us in the Son as a propitiation for our sins and to us in the Spirit as our helper and our advocate and our comforter. This self-giving, delighting love of the triune God both saves us and teaches us what it is for us to love. So it's this self-giving love that informs what John teaches in the last five verses of our passage. I want to categorize what John says here, 17 through 21, in, in two ways, in two categories. Um, one, our love is an abiding in the self-gift of God. And two, our love is a self-giving of ourselves to others. So first, God's self-giving love is what gives us the confidence that John talks about. Right? We have confidence for the day of judgment. Because God gives himself to us as Father, we live different lives. Lives of confidence, not of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Through God's love, we're made like Jesus. Okay, in what way? Jesus perfectly abided in his Father's love. John says, as he is, as Jesus is, so also are we in this world. Jesus has received all things from the Father, as will we. Jesus has access to the Father, freely, unmitigated, as do we in Jesus. Jesus is content to live from every word that comes from the Father's mouth, right? Not by bread alone. And he's given us his body and his blood and his word for us to live on. In short, because we're, we are united to Jesus, we have all things that Jesus has, which is what Paul says in Romans 8. What can separate you from the love of God? Can angels or demons or principalities, can fear of death, can slaughter like lambs separate you from the love of God? No, you have all things in Christ. Now John relates this confidence specifically to the day of judgment. So why does God's love give us confidence whenever Jesus comes back to judge the world? By this union, this abiding in God, we receive all things, or as John says, his words are, we are perfected in love so that we don't fear God's judgment when Jesus comes. John says earlier, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming, which when I feel in my life, the day that I feel in my life no shame at the thought of Jesus coming will be a good day indeed. Because God has given himself to us as a gift, 
we don't fear the love who has given himself to us as our father and brother and helper casts out our fear, comforting us, assuring us that we're safe. But the reality is, though, friends, that many of us, me included, can make no claim big or small to being perfected in that love. Our lives, my life, is still driven by fear. And to that reality, John is not unaware, but he speaks this truth, which is too often tritely repeated or embroidered on pillows or whatever stereotype you want to bring up about this truth. We love because he first loved us. In this, John reminds us that our love is not a purely human action that we do to dispel our own fear and lift ourselves up to worthiness of the gospel. Rather, our love is the new movement that our life takes on as we are taken by God into his own Trinitarian life of love. Jesus did not come to rescue you from your sins only, but to establish you and I firmly in the love that the Father has for him in the Spirit. Therefore, when we fear, the place to go for comfort is not this world where we make plans and we save money and we scour the internet for hints of the next stimulus check or we make sure that all of our relationships are in order or whatever it is that you are most afraid of that you then go and try to make sure it's okay. That's not where we go for real comfort. That only exacerbates our fear. That only feeds our fear. No, it's, it's the love of God that's descended down into the world to raise us up into God's own life. It's through our lives of ascension with Christ that we may become different people whose lives are perfected by love and devoid of fear. But we have to remember that Jesus was not only this content and peaceful and serene rabbi who walked around, right? I want contentment, I want peace, I don't want fear. That's not all that Jesus was though. Jesus gave his life. Jesus was poor. Jesus was murdered. Jesus was hated. Jesus was slandered. Jesus suffered. Because he had an abundance of riches in his father's house, Jesus didn't hoard things on earth. Because he had God's word, Jesus did not seek to make much of himself. Jesus' love was self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-emptying, just as God's love for his son and for us. In this way too, as he is, also we are in this world. Our love must be self-giving in the same way that Christ's is. And this is where John ends this passage, the last two verses. To love our brothers and sisters is to be of one body with them. To love our brothers is not simply to tell others that we love them or to do nice things for people or to participate in the charming southern culture of politeness. To love our brothers and sisters is to take care of them, bearing their burdens, living at peace, confessing our sins, welcoming them into our homes, sharing whatever we have, especially with those in desperate need. If love is the giving of oneself to another and doing good to them as the father and son do, then selfishness, self-importance, or resistance to sacrificing our time, money, and priorities does not constitute love but hate. In short, 
Loving our brothers and sisters is giving our lives to them. Not just for them in an abstract sense, like, oh, I sacrifice. Giving ourselves to them so that they have as much command over our lives as we do as one body. If we do not, then in as much as we resist that, we live lives of hate. This is a radical call to loving one another, but it's all over the scriptures. John makes it inescapable, I believe. Last two verses, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, then, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Christians, we have no reason to expect Christianity to survive in this nation or in the Western world if we don't take what John says seriously. The church and the faith is dying for some good reasons. Because we live lives not of Trinitarian love, of self-giving, but of fear and self-importance and self-protection. And others outside of the church and our children in the church see it. What John teaches us about love, about the God who is love, about the life of self-giving and self-sacrifice runs counter to the narrative of our culture at every juncture. It runs counter to climbing the employment ladder. It runs counter to being educated solely to get a job, make money, buy things, and live a comfortable life. It runs counter to living in neighborhoods but not knowing your neighbors. Driving out of your way to get what you want while not knowing what your neighbor might need. The love that John speaks about is about as countercultural for us today as it ever has been in the history of Christianity. But what's truer than that, what's, what's, what's more concrete and sure than that, is that this story of love, God's life as Trinity, is a truer reality than any other story our culture tells us. God's self-giving life as Father, Son, and Spirit shapes the reality that we live in is the reality that we live in, whether or not our culture has helped us to see it and know it and love it and believe it. So what we must do as Christians in our culture is to fight against the cultural liturgies that shape us into antichrists. Do you know what I mean by cultural liturgies? The expectations of our culture, the things that, culture, that people do in our culture that time and time again shape our values in ways that are antithetical to this gospel. A liturgy is just a habit, over and over again, given to us by other people that help make us into different people. We must not allow the culture around us to teach us that things are more important than people. That the safety of our neighborhoods is more important than people. Or that America is more important than the church. We must not allow our hearts to be shaped by material goods, or approval in this culture, or the values that are so self-evidently right to this 25-year period. Instead, we must seek out as a church a way of life together, the people in this room together, a way of life that trains our hearts and our minds and our bodies 
to die to ourselves and to serve those around us, especially those of the household of faith. This way of love seems very hard, and in many ways it is, but it is the way of the universe. It's the way of the creator, and it's certainly the way of happiness. Pray with me. Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love. And that we may obtain what you have promised to us, all of your promises that you have given us. Make us love what you command. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.